Night racing is back at Richmond Raceway. This spring, top NASCAR drivers like Ryan Blaney, Chase Elliott, Bubba Wallace, Ross Chastain, and Virginia's own Denny Hamlin will battle under the bright lights. And this historic track also offers a rocking infield experience with unparalleled access to your favorite drivers and one of the best tailgate scenes around. For a weekend of friends, family, and amazing short track action, head to Richmond Raceway, March 29th through 31st. Get tickets now at richmondraceway.com. You are listening to the Hiking Radio Network, where we talk the walk with shows by hikers about hikers for everybody. Mighty Blue on the Appalachian Trail, the ultimate midlife crisis. Join Steve and his guests every week as he staggers from Georgia to Maine. Hey guys, how are you all? You're listening to Mighty Blue on the Appalachian Trail, the ultimate midlife crisis. And I am Mighty Blue, bringing you interviews from the trail to inspire you and hopefully get you out there hiking. And if you can't get out there, then our guests will thrill you with their stories and the adventures that they undertake. Today we have a guest who wrote to me on a particular subject, and as often happens with me, I felt that he'd make a good guest on the show because, well, the email he sent me resonated with me, and I thought he'd have a story to tell. And he does. Eric Russell, who hiked the AT in the 1990s, will be on soon. On our ATC segment this week, the subject is staying in the know, and our guest is Jordan Bowman, Communications Director for ATC. I did stick to that subject in the beginning, but as you'll hear, I wanted to touch on something else partway through the interview that a listener had let me know about. Jordan will be on after Eric. And in Larry Luxembourg's Walk in the Appalachian Trail this week, Larry writes about all the things that can go wrong on a thru-hike. So that could be a lot of fun. So let's get started now and hear from a remarkably young-looking Eric Russell, or Lars. Well, today we're going to meet a guy who hiked the AT in the 1990s. And I know you can't see him because this is a podcast, but he looks like he could have done it last week because he's so young-looking. His name is Eric Russell, also known apparently as Lars. Hey, Eric, how are you? Good morning. How are you? Too bad, thanks. And and I've invited you on to retell a specific story, which you sent in, to me in an email. But we're going to leave that till near the end. First, though, I'd like to chat with you about your hike. It's hard for me to believe you went in 1997. <laughs> what were the numbers like in those days? Uh, certainly less than today. Uh, if from everything you hear. Um, I mean, I think uh, the best numbers I could give you are probably in the, the book you've been reading recently from Larry Luxembourg. I think he said, you know, about 2,000 people a year were starting then. Uh, certainly the vast majority were going north, as they are today, with, with probably even fewer going south. Um, and, and the anecdote at the time, which seems low to me, was that 200 people a year finished, about a 10% finish rate. But that, I, I just from my experience, it seems like it was lower than 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 what I what I experienced, but that's just an anecdote. Um, but those were the numbers that were tossed around, where 2,000 started and 200 finished. And were there many women on the trail in those days? Very few. Um, there certainly were some wonderful, I mean, everybody was wonderful. There certainly were women. I, you know, I, I anticipated this question, so I thought about it a little bit. I think I probably only met a dozen, certainly not more than 20. Wow. 
Wow. And my observation from going in 2014, first at first time, was that um, it was about 80-20 in terms of men to women starting, but almost 50-50 finishing. So I wonder if that was a similar experience for you. Um, I, I don't think it was 50-50 finishing. Uh, I couldn't speculate on what the numbers were, but certainly – probably a higher percentage of the women finished than a percentage of the men. Yeah. <laughs> I think it reinforces my whole theory that men are stupid and take daft risks, don't they? Uh, and you were clearly a youngster. By the looks of you, you were probably three when you went <laughs> first time. But you were um, you were 20, weren't you? Was it 19 or 20? Yeah, I, I was 20 years old. It was a yeah. year. So that, for, for most Americans, indicates you either dropped out of college or you didn't go to college. So what was your situation? Uh, so I went right in the middle. Uh, you know, I, I thought about it after high school. My dad gave me some good advice to at least go to college first and then uh, make a decision later. And where I was in at school at Hobart and William Smith, which is just a wonderful liberal arts college in Western New York, I was on trimesters at the time. So there was a fall term, a winter term, and a spring term. And so after, uh, so in the middle of my sophomore year, I decided to take the spring term off, which yeah. would give me six months, you know, take the spring and the summer to hike and then go back to school in the fall. Uh, and wow. that worked out really well for me. It's interesting. Uh, when we spoke before, you did mention your dad gave you this advice. Um, was it advice or was it an instruction? <laughs> would he have let you go? It was, uh, I would say it was advice. Um, he, it was. It was definitely him looking out for me and trying to guide me to making you know a good decision um but as with many people that age i was i was somewhat stubborn uh and good lord, good lord. <laughs> 20 years old and stubborn <laughs> can you imagine <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. but they, they i mean my parents are very supportive they always um always were supportive of things that we wanted to do so they would have they would have uh supported if i had gone after high school but but they um it was a good decision for me. It was really, really worked well for me to go in the middle school. I basically hiked AT instead of, you know, studying abroad or, or taking an experience like that. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. And you were a hiker though, weren't you? I believe you were brought up in New Hampshire? Yeah, yeah. So I'm born and raised in New Hampshire, still live here. Uh, the house I'm living in right now is probably five, less than five miles to the crow flies from the AT. Nice. Uh, and, and yeah, we grew up hiking and canoeing and, and biking and doing everything in the woods. Uh, it, it was great. Um, and the AT was always sort of a known quantity being in New Hampshire and Vermont and hiking around there. And I, I knew people who had through hike before and knew one fellow who was a triple crowner by the mid nineties. And, and, uh, even my mom had hiked, um, maybe a thousand miles of the trail in the sixties. Yeah. I've got a question about that. So she hiked it in the sixties, but you said she never spoke much about it. It's not as if it's, you know, um, I think most people say that if their parents were in the war, they don't speak about the war. Now, why does she not speak much about it, do you know? I, I, you know, I don't know. My, my parents have never really talked too much about, um, they've never talked too much about their past so much. I think it's because they're um, sort of focused on the present and the future and, and raising us and, and letting us have our uh, experiences and dreams. Um, so while I don't have any, memories of her talking about it or 
or anything, I should ask her about it. I mean, that's, I, I was thinking yeah. about it as we were talking, I like, think... <laughs> you know, I, I should probably ask her about it at some point. Uh, I'll tell you, I, w- I want to interview her on the show. This is, this could be the first uh, mother and son I interview separately. Okay. <laughs> cool. You know what? I'll, I'll toss that, toss that by her <laughs> and see what she says. And uh, does she have photos from the trail at that time? No, not that I'm aware of. No, I'll tell you, Steve. You never know. I don't have any photos of the trail either. You're kidding me. No. Well, you're not going to be very helpful for the show notes when I put pictures in, are you? That's not helpful at all. I I have two pictures. Uh, One was the picture. So the ATCs put all their pictures from uh, Harper's Ferry online. Right. So there's a photo of me there. Right. And then, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe 10 years ago, somebody else who hiked that year uploaded his photos. And I happen to be in one of them. So those are the only two pictures I have of the trail. Well, funnily, was that a deliberate choice, by the way? Uh, no, I mean, it, cameras just were, well, cameras are heavy to have a decent camera. Right. Cool, um, there were digital cameras were not any good if you could get one. Right. Uh, so it was all film. Um, you, know, you certainly had the, the pocket cameras, um, but I just never, never carried one. It's uh, funny, very, actually. Very few people did. I'm sure they didn't because you know you're right, film and all that sort of thing, and then taking them to take them to get developed for about a week, and then you see six cra- crappy pictures usually. So, uh, and and how different is that now? And funnily enough, I was I've, I've been writing um, the story of my hike in the Camino in 2018, and I look at my photos. I know the exact time of the day I was at certain places, so it really helps me bring those memories back. Do you remember a lot of the trail or does it all kind of gel together? I'd say it's a little bit of both. There are certainly some memories that are just, you know, crystal clear. Uh, and then there are others where it's it's definitely fuzzy. Like I remember, oh, that happened, but I wouldn't, couldn't necessarily tell you exactly where it was. Or I might get things out of order a little bit. Um, you Did, know, you keep but, a Did you keep a journal? Did you keep a journal? No. Oh my God, you got no record of it. So you're like your mum. <laughs> That's hilarious. <isn't> it? <laughs> so you, so because you had to fit in with certain school times, what were your dates of hiking then? Yeah, so I started uh, March 24th and mm-hmm. uh, I finished on September 11th. Uh, so about five and a half months. Uh, you know, I had six months available, which was certainly considered plenty of time. A six month hike was kind of a longer hike at that point. Um, with five months being pretty typical. Um, So I had plenty of time and didn't feel any time constraints having six months available. Uh, I've actually written down in the notes that September 11th, and of course, four years later, it meant something, but it meant nothing to you then. And it's funny how that that just date just resonates in my mind for as everybody else's mind for entirely different reasons. But for you, it was nothing, was it? It was just September 11th. No, at the time it, it, yeah, uh, we were four years away from, the yeah. tragedy of September yeah. 11th. Um, so it was just, just another day on the calendar at that point. Yeah, amazing. Um, and did you go alone? The vast majority of it, yeah. So I um, I started alone, just left my dorm room, uh, and went, got, got, found my way down to, to Georgia with some friends and family helping me out along the way and hiked. Um, I mean, you meet people, obviously. Everybody expects that. Sure, and, and sure, you meet sure. lots of people. Um, I was fortunate, though. My brother was in high school at the time, and he joined me uh, during his summer break. So right. he hiked from beginning of June, sort of June 1 or 2, somewhere in there, until the middle of August, which for us was from Waynesboro, Virginia, to Gorham, New Hampshire. So he hiked about 1,000 miles with me. 
Well, that's a lot. Of, that's quite a lot of hike. Yeah, that's yeah. nice. Yeah, funny. I, I, I'm. I mean, I know that people, and we've talked about this in the past, but how people uh, join up with other people on the trail, and it does change their hike somewhat. Did you find that you were suddenly looking out for your brother because you know he's still your brother and he's younger than you? Yeah, I mean, I guess I did a little bit, but you know, he was he was a responsible person as teenagers go. Uh, so I didn't have to look out for him much. He was just as experienced in the woods and hiking and comfortable with all that as I was. Uh, so, I mean, I suppose I looked out for him some, but, but he didn't need any special attention. And uh, he was, I mean, he was, it was wonderful. I really enjoyed having okay. him. You know, the only sad days I had on the trail were right after he left because uh, I missed him. Uh, but it was, it was great having him. Um, I'd like to do it again with him someday if, if he was up for it. Uh, cool. we, we've sort of talked about how we could, could do something in the future where we do a long trip together again. Yeah, well, there's plenty of places to hike. There's no doubt about it. But yeah, oh, yeah. I could, let me just tell you, though, going back to do another AT does not suck. It was entirely different height for me second time. So don't worry about going back and thinking it'll be the same. <laughs> it just won't. And also, you better remember it this time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely no being able to you know being able to take a camera and uh record it would be would be great and you know that's when i go back again and i do i do plan to do a lot of hiking in the future and would like to do long distance hikes, hikes again and it'll be totally different for me i mean hiking at 20 that's formative ages right it's it's just kind of becoming who you are uh, and so if i if i get the opportunity to do another one it'll be a totally different place in my life i won't be indestructible anymore uh, oh, you learned that one already, have you? Well done. <laughs> I have, yes. <laughs> so that's interesting. Yes, uh, and funny enough, that I didn't actually write that down as a question, but now you've mentioned it, I think we'll talk about that. You said those days were the formative years in your hike. How? What would you take differently now? Do you think from what you took then? Uh, so at that point, so that was the first time sort of in my life where I had a six month period where I could wake up every day and just do exactly what I wanted. And mm -hmm. for me, that was, I loved to hike. So I would just hike and camp and it was, it was fantastic. Um, but right, you're sort of figuring out who you are. You're in school, you're learning all sorts of stuff. You're experiencing new things. You're talking to people. You're, um, and this was a chance to go out and just experience a part of the U S that I had not, uh, you know, I, I'd been to, probably 40 states at that point, been to Europe wow. and, and wow. stuff, but never at that pace. And so it was a very formative experience. I got to have all these experiences, which which at this point in my life, I still look back as sort of touchstones of, you know, I think this way because I sort of had this experience at that point. Um, and I certainly didn't realize that at the time. Uh, and I think that if the next time it'll be a more of a transitional phase where I'm transitioning from, um, you know, raising kids and working a whole lot to sure. whatever comes next. Uh, and those just sort of are sort of different points in, in life as, as I see it. So would you like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to labor the point, but I find it interesting. So stick with me on this then. Sure. So, so did you, do you think that the things you've done in your life in many ways did stem from that experience because you learn certain things and the ability to look out for yourself and all, all that sort of stuff when you're actually on a hike? I think it reinforced all of those things within me. I mean, I think I would have sort of gotten to where, I mean, we all like to think we would have gotten to where we are anyway, sure. uh, but it was, it was 
definitely a building experience and, and reinforced a lot of that. And uh, a lot of my love of the deep woods was, was just, I mean, I already enjoyed hiking, but I really love the deep woods now. I go to northern New England and every year and, and make a point of just spending time in the woods. And uh, So, yeah, I, I'd say that it was it was something that helped me grow into who, who I am and, and uh, reinforced a lot of the things I think about and do today. Yeah. And did it, did it give you a simpler life out on the trail? Absolutely. That's part of what I loved about it. It's so simple, right? It's, yeah. it's just, <laughs> it's not complicated. You know, yeah. It's just, the choice is either walk or boat walk. You know? Right. You know, and if you get a chance to swim, you go for a swim and uh, if you have food around, you eat it. <laughs> yeah, definitely the food bit. Uh, I, I, you know, I hardly ever swim, and I'm 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 annoyed myself for not swimming. I'm, I must, if I ever go again, I'm definitely going to swim a bit more. So, but well, your brother joined you. Uh, it was a positive event for you. Um, but did you notice a shift in your hike? You, did you have to slow down, or was he pretty strong already, and he just stayed with you? Oh, he was already already a really strong uh, oh. hiker in great shape. So I I didn't have to slow down for him. Uh, I mean, one thing that he did for me was, you know, I made it very clear that, you know, this was my hike and, and I was somewhat selfish about that with him. And so he's he your younger of, brother. That's what he's meant to be. That's what he's there for. <laughs> yeah, there's certainly some sibling stuff in there. Uh, but I, th- I like to think I was straightforward with him that, um, that you know, I was going to make the big decisions. Not not every decision. You obviously listened to him and, and we, sure. we made decisions together. But, but if there was something I really wanted to do, I was going to go do it. Yeah. <laughs> But so, at the same time, he was independent, so he could have gone and done something else if he wanted. But then he left, and you you said you got a bit down. That was interesting. Yeah, So, and you actually slowed down after that a bit, didn't you, as well? I mean, I know that the train slows you down anyway, but for a, for a, for a, for an app, certainly for a young guy, young, fit guy, you could have done it far quicker. Were you deliberately slowing down because you were enjoying it so much? Yes, yeah. I um, I knew when I had to be back at school, and I could have – could have finished, you know, weeks, a couple of weeks earlier without any struggle. Uh, I spent a full extra week in Maine alone, uh, just enjoying myself and uh, hanging out by lakes and on beautiful mountaintops and uh, and just really sort of savoring the experience as much as I could uh, because I, I enjoyed it and, uh, and I missed it when I was done, that's for sure. So what were the magic moments? Tell us about a particular moment you, that really thinks you think to yourself, even though I haven't got a photo of this, I've got it in my mind so clearly. Uh, here's one that, that not having cameras uh, comes in in a couple of ways. Uh, McAfee's Knob, right? Iconic place. Everybody knows it. Uh, I don't think that I had even seen a picture of it before I went up there. Oh, really? All what? I knew was that there was this great view and – I decided I was that it would be fun to be there at sunset. Uh, so I hiked up there after eating at the home place and hiked up there for sunset and got to watch the sunset there all alone. And then there was a campsite on a mile past there. Yeah. Uh, but so, so that's one where, you know, I don't think I'll ever forget that day of, of hiking up as the sun's setting and being on McAfee's now alone as the sun sets in a place that I had never even seen a picture of before but interestingly the picture is taking taken about 80 yards to the south as it were and so you didn't see the picture did you you just no. were there in it but you didn't see it that's Absolutely. amazing you haven't got your own either and you did say that the home place was a you weren't quite as pleased <laughs> with the home place as as you everybody told you to be <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. So my, I mean, my mom is is from the south with the southern roots. Uh, so I I grew up visiting there and eating just incredible southern food, and so I was excited. And other people had you know really talked it up. And again, I didn't know, I intentionally didn't know about a lot of places beforehand. Um, so as I was, you know, people were talking up, and and it was you know the greatest restaurant ever. Uh, and so we go there and, and it was, it was good. I mean, it was a good restaurant. I, I would not hesitate to recommend people go there, but compared to, you know, the food of my youth with, with my Southern family, it was, it was fairly mediocre, which was a, a bit of a disappointment uh, in oh. the moment. Um, Never heard that about the home place. That was <laughs> yeah. I loved it. I went there three times. <laughs> you know, one, th- one thing I learned there were that expectations matter. And uh, you shouldn't let other people set your expectations for you. Uh, that is very true. That's a good lesson to learn as well, isn't it? Yeah. What about the gear differences? Twenty odd years has been a big thing. Um, you'd obviously take a smaller pack now, I presume. Were you, as as you were a quite an experienced hiker, so you knew what you needed? I, I suspect in the woods. Were you quite relatively light or not? Uh, I'd say, yeah, I'd say, I'd say so. Uh, so one big difference when you talk to hikers from from back then to today. Because if you ask people from then how much their pack weighed, they'll give you the absolute maximum amount it ever weighed. So when you hear people say they had 50, 60 pound packs, that's with, you know, 10 days of food, two liters of water, any gear they could possibly put in. You know, today, of course, you ask somebody about the pack weight and they tell you the the smallest amount it could possibly be. But we also, we just didn't pay as much attention. I mean, it was was more of a run what you brought kind of environment where people brought the gear they had uh so my pack let's see there was a i think you could weigh it at amicalola if i remember correctly right there's a scale there yeah right and including uh including food and water and everything it was about 48 pounds right Uh, now i carried food from there all the way up to hiawassee so i had like eight nine days of food at that point Uh, so it was a heavier than average food bag and that was consistent for me throughout the hike. Um, the other, the other gear point I can tell you, which would be a low point, somewhere in Pennsylvania, might have been. Do they have a scale at the uh, the ATC Center in, in Harpers Ferry? Do you know, I don't, I, I don't know because I didn't need, I wouldn't have needed it myself. But I suspect they probably okay. do because some people start these days from Harpers Ferry. So somewhere in there, uh, we weighed our packs again, and it was again right around. It was in the low forties. And someone there said, hey, well, how much does it weigh without your food and water? So I took my food bag out, took my water bottles out, and it weighed 13 pounds. Oh, wow. <laughs> Cracker, you had a lot of food in there, didn't you? <laughs> I ate a lot. Yeah, because <laughs> you can. That, yeah. that, and that is what home place is good for, let me tell yes, you. Yes, it tons, is. Tons of food. Um, so you had quite a bit of solitude before you met your, your brother. And a lot of youngsters, and I'm not – tiring anybody with this at all but a lot of it youngsters do like to party and so on were you hiking with other people or were you generally on your own and did you enjoy being by yourself uh, well i did enjoy being by myself and i imagine it's similar today where you, the actual during the day hiking is is pretty much all alone uh but you would meet people at views for lunch or whatever water sources to get water and and certainly there were people at the shelters and campsites every day uh, I think I told you, I, you know, I only spent one night alone the whole trail, and I had to do that on purpose by going on a side trail. There were always at least a couple other hikers around, and in the south, there were lots of hikers around. I mean, shelters were full, yeah. uh, with, with tents all around and everything. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed the mixture of the two. Um, I mean, the partying is 
probably a big difference. Uh, well, yeah, so many of the southern counties the AT goes through were still dry back then. Still are. Are they? Okay. <laughs> so, so, I mean, I, back then you couldn't buy, I don't think you could even buy a beer until you got the hot springs. Wow. Um, it might be thirsty, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was 20, so. Uh, oh, cool. You couldn't. <laughs> anyway, could you? Yeah. I've, I've, that, I've never understood that law at all. People didn't pay much attention to that back then. It was, it was, that was different than today. But, um, but there was not a lot of partying. I remember one, you know, there was really only one time I remember people partying, and that was at the, at the, um, uh, what is it, the Fontana Dam shelter where people can actually drive in and so people had had yes. driven like 30 miles to whatever town sold alcohol and brought back some schnapps or something uh-huh. uh that was passed around the campfire that evening uh, yes. but, but there was not what i would call a party scene at that point uh, but you got a katahdin which mm-hmm. is just a magical finish for everybody what mm-hmm. was it like for you because were there many others around when you went when you went up uh yes yeah, so there were let's see so when i got Took a ton. I think there were three or four other through hikers, and you know we all summited the same day. Um, most of Maine, it didn't rain, but it was overcast and cloudy for a mm. lot of the state. So mm. I never actually saw the mountain. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so it was, you, was the first time you saw it as you cross Eyeball Bridge? Then uh, I never saw it. It was. It, it was, was that bad. It was oh. in a cloud the whole time from what wow. is it like white cap or white top where you supposedly get the first view of it. It was in a cloud. Bed. Away, yeah. <laughs> right. It was in a cloud at Abel bridge. It was in a cloud oh. when we hiked it. Uh, you know, so it was, it was in the clouds the whole time. So I never, never got any of those, those views, uh, but you know, still had a great hike up and, and I guess that's a big difference from, uh, from today. You know, I never saw a weather forecast uh, the whole hike. Where of course now on your phone you can get a weather forecast whenever you want. Sure. Uh, you know, so we 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 hiked up. We uh, I think uh, someone had some cigars, which we enjoyed while we were sitting by the sign, hoping the cloud would blow away. It didn't, and uh, we hiked back down and uh, headed home. So, what was that like once it was over? Were you you know there's this a lot of people have talked about post trial depression. How did you feel? Were you just satisfied it was done and you just got on with your life? Uh, more, more of that than the prior. I, I definitely didn't have anything like, like depression or anything, uh, mm-hmm. but I missed the trail. I was sad about it. Um, you know, I, I wanted to, I would have enjoyed continuing that lifestyle. I was lucky in that. So part of my college experience, I did a, a dual degree program and that fall I actually went to Dartmouth, which is in Hanover sure. for the year to study engineering. Nice. And, you know, one of my fellow hikers was also a Dartmouth student. So she was there. And, uh, you know, like Baltimore Jack lived in Hanover in the winters at that point. So there were sort of three of us that had, that had been on the trail that year. And we all got to nice. see each other and stuff. So, so there was some of that. Um, but it was definitely a, a transition. Uh, you know, I got the worst grades of my whole college career that fall, which may or may not well be connected it. to that. Well you know? worth it. Well <laughs> worth it. <laughs> now, I know you've been back and done some trail, trail work. Um, was, was, that, was that a feeling of giving back? Or you just wanted to get back and touch the trail again? combination of both um you know one i was looking for a job that would would pay at least a little bit of money uh so that was that was nice and then also it, it was an opportunity to be outside so yeah i led two trail crews for the student conservation association which if, if people don't know is a, just a fantastic organization 
uh, that run lots of different programs. The one I was in, take high school students, they volunteer for a month or five weeks of their summer to go somewhere and do trail work. And so wow. we take them into the woods for, for a month and, and do trail work. Uh, and one of the two crews I did was up in Maine on the AT between Old Blue and Elephant, Elephant Mountain. Uh, so I, I did get to spend another month on the trail. Uh, I guess that one was probably like 2005, somewhere in that time frame. Send me a link to that because it, some sure. people might be interested in sending their kids on something like that. Yeah, oh, it's it, it's a fantastic organization. And if, if people are looking for a way to um, either for their teenagers or for former hikers who are looking for a way to spend a month in the woods and give back and, and not have it, uh, and at the same time, uh, you have it be sort of a at least a break-even proposition. <laughs> It's a great, great group. Very cool. Very cool. Now, let's move on to that story that you told me in your email. And I'm going to just let you just tell it, and then we'll just talk about it afterwards. What actually happened? Yeah, so I, this is a story that is very clear in my mind, that is one of those ones, touchstones that I go back to uh, throughout my life. Sure. Um, and it's really come up in the last 12 months with a lot of the uh, the the rise to prominence of the Black Lives Matter movement and other uh, efforts to be more inclusive uh, within our within the U.S. and in our society. But so I was in Hiawassee doing all the things trail people do, um, hiking around with a fellow hiker who was from Seattle, and and we were going to the grocery store and and all that sort of stuff. And then and I had, like I said, I have southern roots, so he was he had never been to the South before. And was just sort of asking about it. And, and I had visited a lot and had a lot of family there. So I was, you know, telling him whatever little bits I could. And as we're in the post office, he made a comment just that he was surprised he hadn't seen any African-Americans. Um, and, and not just as hikers, but just any at all around town or anywhere. Oh. And the postal employee uh, just very casually uh said something along the lines of, um, you know, honey, those folks don't come around here, especially after dark. And it was said, and, you know, she could have just been saying the sky is blue. That's how just this was just a normal piece of um, information that she was willing to share with, you know, complete strangers at work in, uh, you know, just, it was just a casual comment on her part. Um, yeah. And, the other hiker and I, you know, we we shared a look, we shook our heads, and we went about our day. We really didn't do anything. Um, and you know, as as we talk about inclusion on the trail, it, it becomes pretty easy to understand why there are not um, African Americans or other people of color out hiking when they couldn't go to town and safely. Um, you know, shop and buy resupplies and stuff. And it was a casual comment, but it was very clear that it was also very sincere. I mean, and she meant it. It was, you know, a person of color was not going to be safe in Hiawassee and at that time. Uh, yeah. More welcome. Um, you, I you guess, mean, sorry, I, I just want to interrupt you a second because you mentioned in the email a concept I never even heard of called sun, sundown towns. Yeah. Where so that, where did that come up? So this would have been three or four years later. I was attending a lecture uh, by James Lowen. He was a 
I think he was a professor. He was certainly a member of the sociology department at the University of Vermont uh-huh. at that time. And, and he was giving a lecture on sundown towns. And these are towns where in the early 20th century, they, they actively drove African-Americans from their homes, drove them out of town. And when he, I was listening to that lecture, it reminded me of this experience in the Hiawassee Post Office. And so I asked him about it, and it turns out that um, Hiawassee was a likely sundown town 100 years ago. And in fact, many of the whole counties in North Georgia uh, were sundown counties, and there were um, active attempts, and in some cases, successful attempts to drive African-Americans out of those towns and counties and to make it unsafe for them to enter. and so when we think about the AT, I mean, that's a pretty uh, pretty important part of our history to be aware of when we talk about how do we uh, make it a, a safe place and encourage people to be included on the trail. Do you think that, that the lady from the post office would say the same thing today? I hope not. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, my, my feeling is that things have changed dramatically, but nothing changes overnight. Nothing ever, ever changes overnight. This could be another 40, 50 years before we become fully inclusive. But, you know, I, I think we still do have a long way to go. But, and I, and I you know, I, and I know that I've had comments on this show, and somebody write, write and disagree with me on the show, I'm sure, about uh, how I think uh, we should be, be encouraging more people, more people of color and, and Hispanic people to get on the trail because they don't. They just don't want to because they probably don't feel safe, and it's tough to get across to people that people just don't feel safe out out here. And frankly, yeah. I, what what also, I, and I was delighted to see you wrote this at the end of your email. You wrote to me. You said your show and the conversations you have are part of the solution. I don't talk about it enough because I know it will piss too many people off. Partly, but I th- I think you know I'd love somebody to come on who disagrees with me, who thinks there is no difference because there is a difference, and I just like just want people to acknowledge that and to try to encourage more people out on the trail. You know, it's it it's just, it should be a trail for absolutely everybody. I, I I agree, and part of why this story still resonates with me is because you know I have no common experience with. Um, African-Americans on this. I, I have no nothing that I can compare that to in my life. In fact, my life's the exact opposite of that. People welcome me and encourage me to do things. Um, so I have to step back, you know, listen to what they're saying and, you know, then do what I can. And I, I don't have the answers. I don't know what the solution is. Um, but I do think that openly talking about them and making it clear that, you know, this is happening, and this is a story where it was crystal clear to me that um, that people are being denied access to the outdoors, yeah. uh, and, and that they don't have the same opportunities I have, and that's yeah. a problem. And I appreciate I do I appreciate you uh, taking the approach of, of letting people tell their stories because uh, part of what we all love about the AT is that it is a common experience, and it yeah. gives us something to bond over and to talk about like you and i can have this conversation now and you know we've never really met we have this common that this this experience in common um, and the more of that that we can have the better off we'll be i totally agree well look, i appreciate you coming on and talking to us about it it's uh, uh your story is great anyway 
I'm really want to. I really want to talk to your mum now. By the way, <laughs> Tell her, she's got an open invite. If she ever wants okay. to share stories which she hasn't shared with you yet, <laughs> then I'd love to have her on the show. All right. Okay, I will. Uh, I will pass that along and uh, and see what she says. Okay, man. Well, thanks. Thanks for t- uh, for reaching out, and uh, we'll speak again sometime soon. I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. Hey, thank you. And if and if you're ever uh, hiking north in the AT, as soon as you cross into New Hampshire, send me a text. I'll, I appreciate. Uh, I'll do something for you. Thank you, Matty. Take it easy. Thank you. Bye. Bye. What a fascinating bloke, eh? I thought he was such a nuanced thinker and recognised the impact that things like a through-hike can have on people at different stages in their lives. It made me wonder how differently I'd have been affected by an 80 through-hike if I'd done it, I don't know, 50 years ago, straight out of high school. We often talk to people who share how their perspectives change on a hike and chatting with Eric reinforced to me how significant the age you take your hike is in that process. Don't you want to hear from Eric's mum now? She went in the 60s. How different that must have been. Don't forget to ask her, Eric. You're probably going to learn some things you never knew. And Eric referred to a summer trail cruise that he's led for the Student Conservation Association. If you want to learn more about this or get your kids involved, I've added the link in the show notes. Now the ATC, and this week, a listener wrote to me about an article that he's seen in an Asheville newspaper. It concerned the ATC, and to be fair to them and to let you all know, I did inform our guest, Jordan Bowman, that I'd be asking this question. I never do that, but in this case, I wanted a considered answer, and I didn't feel that it would have been fair to have blindsided him. After all, I wanted to know the thought process. I didn't want to give him a gotcha question. Here's Jordan. Well, we've got on again uh, Jordan Bowman, or, who is Head of Communications at ATC. Hey, Jordan, how are you? Hey, happy to be here. How are you doing, Steve? Um, I'm good, thanks. And your subject, uh, Jordan, is staying in the know, which is a thing we all wish we were, uh, and many of us aren't, um, which I guess is the communication guy is your responsibility. How, how does the ATC keep people in the know? And the reason I ask that question straight off is um, your website, which I think is great in many ways, is somewhat... Sort of labyrinthine you know you've got to really find your way through things is that a fair criticism no i, I think it's fair in the, uh, particularly we have such a wide range of things that we're, we're trying to access sure. and, uh, and showcase for people uh and uh that's you know to your point something that we are in the process of doing first we just transferred to a uh new website interface uh, yes. about the middle of last year yeah uh, and one of our main um goals was actually getting oh gosh, decades worth of material onto this website. And we had a basic navigation plan, um, but part of our goal now is uh, basically doing audit of all this, trying to find the easiest way for people to access this as possible. But, you know, again, I I think I mentioned this in our previous podcast, there's always uh, room for improvement. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And that's an ongoing process. Uh, But yeah, we're, we're, we're definitely in the process of making sure that's accessible. Truthfully, right now, my main priority is making sure any of our most important updates people are able to find immediately just on our homepage or in our navigation bar. So, for example, right now, one of the main things we are wanting people to know about is, you know, are there any COVID-19 updates, any closures or anything uh, that's um, uh, relative to that, related to that? Uh, And then also our hacker preparation information. So all of that is easily accessible on the front page. 
uh, links to our trail updates uh, for any sort of trail closures or weather incidents or anything like that. We want to make sure that's easily accessible. But, but I, I would not look at the uh, website and think it's set in stone. Uh, I, my uh, Our uh, web designer, uh, Dan, uh, his favorite... Um, one of his favorite statements is uh, digital ink is never dry. So we, we uh, <laughs> anticipate true. that to change very quickly. <laughs> yes, that is so true. Um, so how do you gather your sources of information? Do you get it from the various clubs or do you take, do you generally absorb everything you hear from people writing into you? I mean, what what is the method of gaining your information? So we, we have uh, a litany of partners, uh, particularly the cooperative management system. So we will we will receive updates from the National Park Service, uh, U.S. Forest Service, anyone that's from the federal level, each of the state level uh, parks that are out there, um, our individual trail clubs, and then also just our volunteer force and people informing us, hey, we saw a trail, uh, a tree down over the trail in this area. You know, people are constantly giving us information like that through our contact form, and we welcome that information just to make sure, uh, you know, we even as wide and as our reach is through our cooperative management system, you know, something very that's in a grand scheme is really small but could have a big impact, like a, sure. a tree falling over the trail or something like that. You know, anyone who's able to give us that information, we're always we're always welcoming that as well. So, so yeah. to your point, we have many, many different uh, sources that are coming in at any time. So, Well, funny enough, I, I know that um, communication between hikers is often through word of mouth on the trail mm-hmm. or the trail logs. So I must say I saw far less use of the trail logs in 2019 than I did in 2014, so I'm sure there's a change there. Absolutely. How do, how do you get news to people sufficiently fast or do you use it is your vehicle just the website or is there a way in which you can get more information to people literally on the trail? So one of the perks of our registration system, AT Camp, uh, beyond you being able to, you know, say, I'm going to be here on this date uh, and see how many people are in that area, is people can also sign up for instant updates through that system. And that'll come either through email or through a text message. So, for instance, if there was um, like what happened in late 2019 uh, with the bridge being uh, yes. <laughs> completely destroyed yes. in yeah. Harpers Ferry, we sent an update out through our system to anyone who was registered uh, for a 2019-2020 hike uh, that, hey, there's suddenly a huge interruption in the continual footpath. And so yeah. that's something that you'll need to be able to, you'll need to plan ahead for and make a plan for ahead of time. So that that's one of the really useful uh, systems that we have in place. We also make sure uh, beyond our website, all of our social media channels, we update whenever there's any sort of like trail closure or an, an important update, we always have to update those as soon as possible as well. Right. Uh, so anything on you know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, those are usually our go-tos, but we try and if we have a finger in a pie, we try and make sure that we send the information out through that system as well. So uh, we also have a weekly newsletter that goes out. Um, yep. We encourage people yep. to subscribe to. Uh, that will contain any you know, any of the big updates of things that are going on. Uh, obviously, that's not up to the minute since that's usually once course, a week. Yeah, of course. But, uh, but anything that's long-lasting or will have a long-lasting impact, um, that would go there. So what is the current um, state of the trial? Are, are um, 
are the volunteers out there clearing uh, after this winter or are the volunteers on the trail or not? So right now there are volunteers on the trail. Uh, I don't know specifically this week. Uh, sometimes there's a little bit of a gap when winter is there, but volunteer services are continuing. Uh, it is at a reduced capacity just to make sure that we don't, we're you know, maintaining social distancing and group sizes that are required by states and, you know, federal agencies. Yeah. Uh, so there, it, it, I mean, if you looked at uh, our volunteer sizes from last year, it's it's going to be a little bit smaller just because it's necessita- uh, necessitated during this time. Uh, but right. they are out there. They are maintaining the trail. They are monitoring the situations for, you know, any any needed improvements or anything that needs to be fixed immediately. Again, down trees or something similar. Uh, they are out there. They're monitoring the trail and, and making sure it's as, as safe and welcoming as possible. It's amazing, actually, <laughs> how many trees are down isn't it because i know these guys get in there and clear them pretty quickly but man they're you know i know that when i when i went in last certainly last time there were always trees down there's nothing against them at all i just say there is so many things coming down how many trees come down a year do you know it very much depends uh each year i'm thinking specifically back to when i can't remember it was 2019 or 2018 when there was this freak ice storm in Shenandoah and suddenly there were hundreds of trees down. Right. Yes. Know, yeah, every, yeah. every quarter mile or so, it seemed like there was a tree down over the trail. So it really depends on the year. I don't know if I could give a, an exact number on that, but it, you know, to your point, it is one of those things where, you know, how many hundreds of thousands or millions of trees are over the trail. Yes. And yes. sometimes they just get tired. Or sometimes, they, <laughs> sometimes they fall over. Uh, even when it, they say are seemingly helpful, uh, healthy trees. I had a video once in uh, somewhere in Maine, I think, when it, I think from 2014, when the wind was really, really blowing hard up a mountain and going through a forest, and um, the, the all the roots were literally coming out of the ground and going back in again, and coming out and going back in again. I knew that wasn't long for this world. That really makes you comfortable <laughs> at the campsite, I'm sure. So. <laughs> exactly. Now, I, normally when we have these these conversations, I don't give any of the ATC guys any forewarning of any questions I'm going to ask. But I have done in this particular case because I thought it was important to get a, a response, uh, a considered response, because it may it may not actually fall under the keep saying in the no uh, subject. But I was sent an article um, in the Asheville Citizen Times, I think it was, from a lis- listener that confirmed something that I didn't actually know, although I, sp- I suppose I should have been aware after last year, when the ATC decided not to recognise 2023 hikers, they're doing it again for 2021. And I did give you a heads up over this, I said. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us, I know you said, I know it's not changing from last year, mm-hmm. but I'm sure a lot of people are getting prepared for their hike this year. Not that the certificate is a be-all and end-all of their hike, and we all know that. It's, it's a lovely thing to have, but it's not the be-all and end-all of their hike. The non-recognition of hikers in 2021 will upset a lot of people, as you know, what is the, is there an explanation particularly why this has continued into 2021? Yeah, absolutely. And, and to your point, you know, this is something that we started uh, in March of 2020. We sure. said we're not going to recognize uh, right now. And we've continued that through basically to avoid any contradiction with our messaging. And that is that we don't want to offer or seen as being offering any sort of incentive for people to be getting it on the trail right now. Uh, with this, you know, this pandemic continuing to upend sure. every part of our lives, uh, it, it seems pretty, particularly when the CDC is advising people, you know, one of the things that you can do that could immediately reduce the risk of 
of spreading disease is to reduce any inessential travel. You know, the, the, I, I can't think of, you know, the, the <laughs> traveling 2000 miles up the trail, uh, you know, uh, that that's something that unfortunately, you know, it does fit into that idea of an inessential travel. Uh, it, you know, that you and I are both through hikers saying that is something that's almost painful because it's like yeah. this, this draw, this almost uncontrollable thing, but it, but it is that situation where we can, by avoiding doing that now, we are potentially a keeping COVID off the trail. We're keeping it out of communities and we're, we're being a positive force for, for reducing the spread of this, this horrible horrible virus that has just completely upended everything. Well, I, and I kind of thought that might be sort of the answer, but, and I, I would say actually, to be fair, in 2020, that, I wouldn't use it necessarily the word tactic, but that edict or that, that idea that, um, because, because there's no legal requirement for anybody not to get on the trail. Um, but that idea that people should get off, many, many people listen. So it worked pretty well from a COVID perspective for hikers in 2020. Many people listened to the ATC and got off the trail, and that did keep the numbers down. And in many ways, you could think, well, was that the reason for doing it? It would just keep the numbers down. I think we all benefited as a result. I've got a feeling that that tactic, if you want to call it, will not work this year. So how are you been managing I mean, you know darn well, I don't know how many people registered at ATC camp, there's going to be at least a tenfold increase in through hikers this year. There's just, got, there's just going to be. And, and I'm kind of wondering, how is the thought process going around uh, around that, probably the knowledge that instead of being 250 others there, I think there were last year, it could be 2,500, could be 3,500. Mm -hmm. How, no, I, how I, do you manage that? As of right now, um, you're, I mean, you're, you're pointing out something we're seeing as well. We are, yeah, sure. we have over 2000 registrants on our AT camp system. Right. Uh, and that's voluntary. People aren't required to do that. The number is sure. always higher than that. We know that there's going to be an influx of hikers this year. And to your point, that is why we are hitting this messaging of planning and preparation as hard as we are and sure. making sure if you are going to do this, you know, that you're aware of the risks that you know, that, you know, by preparing ahead of time, making sure that you know, you know, you have all everything you need, that you are uh, avoiding situations like, you know, cramming into a packed shelter where, you know, you're, you're increasing the possibility of being in contact with someone with COVID or potentially spreading yourself if you're asymptomatic. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's why we're hitting that so hard uh, and making sure that people are, are, are aware of that situation. As far as the recognition, again, it, it's really, you know, we're, we're trying to avoid the idea that we are saying that this is something we would support at this time. We know people are doing it. We know people are, you know, even people who were like last year getting off because of uh, our, our guidance. So sure, sure. we're still coming back this year. Um, we, we just don't want to give that idea that this is something that we are actively endorsing right now. Okay. So I, that, you know, that's why we're postponing it. For the time I being. do understand that. I, I, I'm not, um, Personally, I mean, if I were in that situation, I would not be making that decision, but it's a collective decision, I'm sure. And I did ask Sandy last year if she would give an amnesty, but she didn't. She completely scotched that one. And I just kind of wonder whether the ATC, I hope the ATC stays open to life's realities this year. You know, and I'm not sure. I'm sure there's a, there feels, it feels like there's a bit of a disconnect in, in hikers' thoughts. And I understand that the ATC's responsibility is the trail, not the hiker. But I, and I, and I, Glad I asked you the question. I understand your answer. 
I don't think there's a correct answer, by the way, for anybody. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not sure if you want to add to that, but it, I, I think it was a, it's a fair answer. And, and I, but I find it, uh, it, it, seemed, it, it comes across, not as petty, but it comes across as a little unnecessary to me from my perspective. I may be entirely wrong here and I may get all sorts of mail telling me I'm wrong, but it seems wrong to me right now. But, you know. I mean, when I have to say, when does it feel right when you're saying, hey, this is something that you you really want to do it. This is something you've planned your entire life. Yeah. Um, hey, could you not do that? Yeah. I mean, there, there's no time. You know, this this is not what I would want to be doing as a director sure. of communications for the I'm sure. The last thing I want to tell someone to do is yeah. this is not what you want to do. It, it, the, the reality of the situation is right now is that this is this continues to be a, a dangerous time to be through hiking at this yeah. point. You know, we can still get outside. We can still enjoy it. We can still enjoy the AT itself. There are just inherent risks that are, that are happening when you're going through particularly like trail site communities. Um, you know, again, like staying in hostels, anything like this, that's uh, uh, resupplying in towns uh, that's requiring, you know, this multiple opportunities where you could be transmitting, spreading, et cetera. It, it's just one of those things, you know, again, I'm not looking at hikers and saying, um, you know, hiking's bad, through hikers. <laughs> that's, that's not what we're trying to say. And, it, and I, I truly hope it's not coming across that way. It, it's really, we're looking at this from, a, a, you know, that science-based background of that risk is there and we want to try and minimize it as much as possible. This well, I, I I appreciate you, you you putting it that way, and and I I say I, I my my problem is I see absolutely both sides of this equation, and as I'm sure you do as well. Um, but I, but I think and I think it's important that I ask you about it because it was something I didn't know that was going to continue for this year, and I and I just hope that oh, 2022 we're open up again. <laughs> I mean, you and me both. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, you and I are both through hikers. If this yeah. if this happened when we were doing it, I mean. I, I can't think of how devastating that would be. Yeah, and I, 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 every I would, time someone's like, man, this, this is like the worst news I've gotten. I get it. I, I, I put I my hand up. Do. I would not have got off. And I, and I, I know I should, probably should have done, but I wouldn't have done because yeah. once you're, once you're into it, but I, I think some people abandoned their hikes last year quite early on. Mm-hmm. I think they, I think there will be a bigger number this year. So I'm, I'm hoping that everybody stays safe, which is why I think the ATCs, insistence or, or not so much insistence but the way in which they're trying to educate people about how to prepare for this sort of situation i think is absolutely spot on and i think that's a that's the, probably the most important thing we can we can say about that no and i, and I appreciate that and you know I, I i think i speak for everyone that we hope sooner rather than later you know particularly you know as vaccine sure. production sure. is speeding up and distribution that you know we don't have to worry about this anymore yeah. and we, we the last thing we have to worry about is like, you know, am I putting someone at risk by going into a Absolutely. grocery store or putting Absolutely. myself at risk by going into the post office or something like this? This is not what any hiker wants to be thinking about. Uh, they want well, to be look, thinking I, I, about the next campsite, the next mile. I, um, I'd like to stay in touch with you over this particular issue. Uh, going going forward and perhaps when we talk about this in the show a month or two some see how things are developing and we'll chat again but i appreciate you coming on talking about it and uh, appreciate you asking me the question answering the question directly which is always a good thing all right 
absolutely. And you, as always, uh, anyone is always welcome to contact us directly. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to keep on top of this as much as anyone else is. And the situation sure. is constantly changing. So again, we encourage everyone to uh, keep in contact with us, follow our, our social media and everything, just to make sure we've got the most up-to-date information for you. Sure. Okay, man. We'll take it easy and we'll speak again soon. Excellent. Cheers Thank you. Bye. So what do you think? You know where I stand. I'm well. I understand the reasoning. I just think it comes off as I don't know a little unnecessary. As I say, nobody does this hike for six months just to get a certificate. But really, they know people will be out there, and that's why they're pushing their advice so strongly. And I think that's the right thing to do. But I think they're caught between a rock and a hard place. But at the same time, I have zero doubt that they're doing what they think is right. And as you've seen online, they're taking a lot of criticism for that stance. As I said, there could be at least 10 times the amount of thru-hikers on the trail this year, and ATC are probably hoping that, I don't know, 20% of them take the ATC advice and don't go. It could still be the problem that last year, with less than 300 hikers going through to Katahdin, didn't develop into. All I can say is, if you're going, stay safe out there, and stay on the trail as much as you can. And when you go into town, be respectful and wear your damn mask. Now, do you remember a few weeks ago when I mentioned the name of one of our donors? Her name was, as I said it, Jennifer Grinker. Well, Jenny Grunky wrote to me this week. <laughs> this is with her permission I'm reading this out. She said, Hi, Steve. I laughed when I heard you ask how to correctly pronounce my name on your show recently. I'm married into this name. I actually think the way you pronounce it is the correct German way. However, my family's my, my husband's family is from the Midwest and now Southern US, and they pronounce it grunky. Rhymes with rhymes with monkey. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> Love the show. Happy to support your efforts. Thanks for all the joyful listens. I was last on the AT in October 2020 for four days, planning on an early spring trip now, maybe three days. Hope to see you out there. Sounds like perhaps you're going to give it a go for a third attempt. Well, I'm not sure about that, Jenny Gronky, but thanks for clearing up the correct way to refer to you. If you'd like to donate to the shows to keep them coming and get me to screw up the pronunciation of your name on the show, please go to the hikingradionetwork.com website and click on one of the donate buttons there. I'm so appreciative of everybody who does so. This week, I have to thank quite a few people. We had three monthly donors, Suzanne Johnson, Vicky Thomason and Michelle Brown. Thanks so much for sticking with us, ladies. And new donors, Nick Wheatley, Joe Young and Gregory Joyce. You really are the people who keep these shows coming and I thank you all from the bottom of my heart. Finally today, Larry devotes a chapter to all the things that can go wrong on a hike. So be warned. I'll see you next week. The Man Who Dares Difficulties and Dangers Along the Trail there's a race of men that don't fit in, a race that can't stand still. So they break the hearts of kith and kin, and they roam the world at will. They range the field, and they rove the flood, and they climb the mountain's crest. Theirs is the curse of the gypsy blood, and they don't know how to rest. Robert Service, Poet of the Yukon, from The Men That Don't Fit In. The AT is not completely safe, but don't bring a gun. Mosquitoes are too small to shoot and mice are too elusive. People worry about snakes and bears, but they shouldn't. 
It's possible to get mauled by a bear or bitten by a poisonous snake, but the odds of having a traffic accident on the way to the trailhead are much greater. One likely will encounter other miseries or dangers on the trail. Possibilities include heat and cold, snow and rain, malnutrition, hypothermia, giardia, diarrhoea, drowning, lightning and pack snatching. Serious crime, while rare, has happened. There have been murders, rapes and less serious assaults. Cataloguing the physical challenges he overcame, Noel, the singing horseman de Cavalcanti, wrote, I lost 40 pounds. I pulled knee ligaments, got blisters, shin splints, twisted ankles and a stress fracture. I hurt my Achilles and lost my toenails. I pinched a nerve in my neck and got poison ivy and a million cuts, scratches and lacerations. I had hurts I can't even remember. Hypothermia, a potentially fatal drop in the body temperature, is a common problem along the AT, particularly for lone hikers. One is susceptible on rainy, blustery days when the temperature is above freezing. Those are precisely the conditions one frequently encounters in spring in the southern Appalachians. Actually, dangerous conditions can occur in any month at any point along the trail. Keep in mind also that fatigue and hunger can aggravate the symptoms of hypothermia, which includes shivering, lethargy and confusion. Sonny Light Eagle Shames recalls being on the verge of hypothermia when she arrived at a Georgia road crossing on her 1988 hike. Her teeth were chattering so hard she could barely talk. Fortunately, a woman came to her aid and offered her hot tea and warm clothes. Paul Bigfoot Torini found himself approaching hypothermia at Walnut Mountain Shelter in North Carolina. I'd been wet, I'd been cold, and I kept plugging on. I was just wiped out. I still had my senses, but I was shivering. I wasn't hungry. Who comes to the rescue? Albie Pokrob. Albie arrived at the shelter soon after Paul got into trouble. He thawed him out with warm soup and drinks. Defend against hypothermia by carrying enough warm clothes. Wool and synthetics are better than cotton at retaining body heat when wet. Leave the blue jeans at home. Another defence is knowledge. Keep in mind that the weather can change quickly in the mountains. Most hikers who start in Georgia in March or April go through at least one big snowstorm. In the north, particularly in the Whites and the higher mountains of Maine, cold weather, including snow, is possible even in July and August. Hikers have made the mistake of mailing warm clothes home after a 70-degree day, only to find it in the 30s a few days later. Sid, not that vicious Nisbet, on his fourth through hike in 1990, made that mistake again. He, like other thru-hikers, mailed his warm clothes home after crossing the Smokies, but before climbing 6,200-foot Roan Mountain and the range beyond. Severe snowstorms can hit that area quite late in the spring. One time, Ray Hunt got a personal lesson in why one shouldn't rely too heavily on weather forecasts. Holed up overnight in a Georgia shelter in heavy rains, Hunt's companions were four men from the Long Range Weather Forecasting Bureau in Atlanta. They'd picked that weekend for a hike because the weather was supposed to be fine. One part of the 80 experience that Ray thought was among the most dangerous was crossing the bridge over the Susquehanna River at Duncan, Pennsylvania. He had to walk on a narrow sidewalk next to a two-lane highway with 32 wheelers roaring past. When trucks went by with big mirrors, he had to lean away to avoid being hit. About ten years ago, a new bridge opened up with a wider, more protected walkway. Giardia has become more common in the last decade. This waterborne parasite can cause intestinal problems for a long time, particularly if not properly diagnosed. 
Symptoms of giardia include diarrhoea, nausea and extreme fatigue. Generally picked up in drinking water, giardia was originally spread by animals. At one time it was called beaver fever. Rowley Muser believes that in the backcountry people spread it with poor hygiene. Rowley found that, contrary to expectations, people who treated water were statistically as likely to get sick from waterborne illnesses as people who don't. But he, like most people, recommends treating suspect water. Hikers should treat at least some of their drinking water by filtering, boiling or adding chemicals. Most hikers do not treat water that comes directly from an underground spring. Other than that, views vary, but most hikers treat at least some of their water and few treat all of it. In 1990, five hikers travelling in a group in southern Virginia contracted Giardia. They spent time in emergency rooms or clinics, and most spent at least a week convalescing before they could return to the trail. It's not always easy to diagnose Giardia, but those who have it must receive medical treatment. If you experience lingering diarrhoea, see a doctor. Lightning is a real problem along the trail. Although reportedly no AC hikers have ever been killed by lightning, many have had close calls. Each year, lightning kills about 100 people in the United States. On his 1977 hike, Phil Pepin had brushes with lightning in New York and the White Mountains. As he was walking along a road in New York, he saw a flash that seemed to come out of the ground a few feet from him. It sounded like jumper cables shorting out. He could feel the hair standing up on the back of his neck. Suddenly, lightning struck 30 feet ahead of him, then another bolt hit nearby. He raced ahead, found a building, and huddled out of the storm. The lightning was like a shotgun blast, he said. I have a healthy respect for lightning. Paul Torini has developed a strategy that minimises his exposure to lightning. He starts hiking early in the day and tries to be in a shelter by 4pm. He finds that most mountain storms hit later than that. Getting in early gives him more time to recuperate, wash and hang up his sweat-drenched clothes to dry. It also improves his chances of finding space in crowded shelters. Roger Brickner, the 80s weather expert, confirms that in the summer three-quarters of mountain thunderstorms hit after late afternoon. Open country and exposed places above the tree line are the most hazardous for hikers caught in thunderstorms. Many hikers have felt vulnerable in the open stretch north of Rhone Mountain. Roly Muser, who is a physicist and was the Bell Systems lightning expert for part of his career, says during a lightning storm, hikers should avoid the highest part of the landscape. Hair is raised by the electrical field preceding a lightning bolt. That's a sign, albeit a late one, to get off the mountaintop. Lying in a ditch is safer than standing, especially if you're the tallest object around. One also should avoid isolated targets like lone trees and mountaintop shelters. Mary Jo Callan, the grandmother who repeatedly hiked the southern AT, was on her first AT backpacking trip when lightning came calling. According to Jean Cashin, Mary Jo and her hiking companion were not to cross their tent by a lightning bolt. Mary Jo's companion decided she had better things to do with the time, but Mary Jo continued hiking. A far more common danger for hikers is falling. Hardly anyone covers the whole AT without at least a few falls. Some cause broken bones or even death. Bill, the Orient Express Irwin, the blind-through hiker, must have had a record with an estimated 5,000 falls. Mitch Breeze Keeler had one close call going up Kinsman Mountain in New Hampshire. I didn't read how tough it was going to be. The guidebook said grab hold of any roots or rocks you can. Coming down, I did a complete somersault and landed in the fir tree on my back. Luckily, he escaped serious injury. In the whites, I fell every day, he said. 
foot, knee and leg problems are among the most common hiker ailments. Dan Nellis, an outdoor education instructor, stresses that you should wash your feet and socks often. He washes a pair of socks every day and hangs them on his pack to dry. He also suggests inspecting your feet every few days to see if serious problems are developing. He notes that it's human nature to hope that problems will go away, but if we treat minor problems before they fester, major problems can often be avoided. It's not uncommon for hikers to be driven off the trail because of, say, infected blisters, which could have been averted. The most common cause of foot problems is boots that fit poorly or are not properly broken in. Some boots, especially lightweight models, are easier to break in than others. But bear in mind that just because boots feel good walking around your house doesn't mean they will hold up for full days of hiking steep, rocky trails with a heavy pack. If you have a problem, try to rectify it before it knocks you off the trail for good. I never really believed I'd make it, said Laurie, a travelling Wilbury, Mac. I'd had knee problems since I was young. I met a neuromuscular therapist at Trail Days in Damascus. Before we'd hardly said hello, he asked if I was having problems with my knees. He said, your ankles are swollen. I hadn't noticed. He did massage therapy on my legs several times and it was incredible. I had 1,000 miles pain-free. A less obvious source of danger is the confidence, almost hubris, that through hikers acquire. I felt I was nothing but hard muscle and spring steel, said Dan Nellis. It was exhilarating. But he believes that sometimes this attitude can lead to trouble. One instance he cited was sprinting down the trail, catching a foot on a rock, skinning a knee and denting a pack frame. With my outdoor experience, I know that when we're real confident, the accidents happen, he said. For the most part, following the trail now is not hard, but few hikers escape without getting lost at least once. Jean and Mortimer Weiser did the trail in sections, day hiking as much as possible. They got through Mahusit Notch in Maine by noon. Because Jean was the slower hiker, she decided to get a head start on the steep climb up Mahusik Arm. Meanwhile, Mortimer became disoriented and went partway back through the notch, a narrow jumble of boulders that is the slowest, toughest mile of the trail. They were eventually reunited, but then it started to rain and they still had the steep descent of old speck to do in the dark. They borrowed a flashlight and headed down, spotting only one blaze at a time. Sometimes they had to sit down and feel their way. Things kept going from bad to worse, Jean said. They finally emerged at 10pm. It's not unusual to get disoriented on the trail, particularly starting in the morning from a shelter. Bill Irwin, the blind hiker, would always sleep pointed toward the next day's travel. An unusual but painful problem struck Pete Woulda Coulda Shoulda Susie and his partner at the start of the trail. Pete started in mid-May and for eight straight days it was bright and sunny without a cloud. Most hikers start earlier in the spring when it's usually cloudy and rainy. The leaves still weren't out and Pete had just gotten a short haircut. My ears got really sunburned, Pete said. I wore a baseball cap, but it didn't cover my ears. Insects are often the biggest annoyance on the trail. Several hikers, including Grandma Gatewood and Paul Lucky 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 Hollabaw, reported that wearing sassafras leaves in a band on their heads kept most bugs away. In North Adams, Massachusetts, Dick Lotek Searslick found he had trickles of blood on his stomach from blackfly bites. He'd been wearing a net shirt. The bites eventually swelled to the size of half dollars, lasting a month. Another growing concern is Lyme disease. It is spread primarily by tiny deer ticks. The symptoms of the disease include a red, inflamed circle around the bite, fatigue, joint pain and nausea. 
Since these symptoms are common in other afflictions, Lyme disease is difficult to identify without a blood test. If a doctor can't identify your illness, inquire about Lyme, reminding him that you've spent a lot of time in the woods. It can be effectively treated with antibiotics if caught early. An unexpected but nonetheless real danger for hikers is their own equipment. They can impale themselves on their walking sticks, break their packs and turn their stoves into fireballs. Frank Redblaze Shea had been fiddling with his white gas stove the whole trip. Every few weeks it would clog up and stop working. He cleaned it and usually got it to work, but this time was different. He was sitting at the picnic table in front of the Rorsch Gap shelter, also known as the Halfway Hilton, in Pennsylvania. The stove wouldn't work. He cleaned it, tried again, then walked away to calm down. When he returned and lit it again, a flame shot eight feet into the air. I jumped halfway across the valley in a second, he said. The fuel can, which had been full with 32 ounces of white gas, burned for ten minutes. In the 80s, 70-year history, seven hikers have been murdered. Five since 1981. There is some debate about the efficacy of firearms for personal defence, but the ATC and most hikers discourage their use. Noel, the singing horseman de Cavalcanti, wrote a letter to the AT News, saying that as a former career military officer and lifelong hunter, he does not object to guns in general, but feels they have no place on the trail. Others point out that four of the murder victims were attacked in their sleep, so what good would it have done to carry a gun? As Morris Forrester Jr. put it in the AT News, the age of innocence on the trail is gone for good. The idea that the trail is a sort of haven, immune from the ills of society, is out of date. Still, the AT remains remarkably safe. The Appalachian Trail may not be the paradise our fancies would like, but it is still a far better place than most others, Forrester concluded. Every year, at least a few packs are stolen. Rape is a continual concern, particularly on the section of trail north of Elk Park, North Carolina, a high crime area. Although many women do hike alone safely, they need to observe proper precautions, as do male hikers. It was brought home to me by Andy Coon when his pack was stolen, said Jan Sakajawir Collins. I came across his things on the trail. It was 1982, the year after the murders of a young couple at Wapiti Shelter, Virginia. I found Andy's sleeping bag and tent scattered in the bushes, but no pack. That's all I could picture, a copycat crime. We booked it to the road and tried to flag down a car. It was 90 degrees and we looked like slime balls. We were so distressed. Finally, I decided to stand in the middle of the road and get somebody to stop. I needed to know where Andy was. A nice couple stopped and rolled down their window a crack, just enough to hear what I had to say. I told them my friend was missing. They had a tremendous amount of trust to take us to the police. The police couldn't find his name because they had spelt it wrong. Finally, they told us he was okay. The couple drove us to his hotel and there was Andy. He was so scared. He'd been there a few days. He didn't want the incident to end his trip and he asked us to go back with him to get his remaining things. Andy had been beaten up and had thought his arm was broken. No one would stop for him or let him into a house to make a phone call. Later, describing the attack in a shelter register, Andy wrote a courageous and humorous entry that closed with, People shouldn't pick on short people. He's continued to hike the AT, completing five through hikes and working as a hostel or shelter caretaker other summers. Even veteran hikers are careful whom they tell about their travel plans or where they'll be staying. Women especially need to be attentive when crossing roads. Many pretend that they are with a group by using the plural, We're going to do this. 
and by looking down the trail as if they're expecting someone. Most advise that if you pick up bad vibes about a person or a situation, it's best to move on. If somebody gives you the creeps, get away, said Susan Gale Airy. Often a person's senses pick up subliminal cues about a situation that are on target, but don't readily translate to the conscious mind. Always be prepared to move on if you don't feel comfortable in a shelter. Some hikers try to avoid camping near a road or at an easily accessible shelter. Still, the risks, while real, need to be kept in perspective. I've done most of my 5,600 miles of backpacking alone, Susan Gale said. If I didn't go alone, I wouldn't go at all. There are things that are a whole lot scarier than backpacking alone. Profile Walken Jim Stoltz Among thru-hikers, Walken Jim Stoltz stands out in many ways. One in particular is that he has continued to hike largely off major trails for the last 20 years. A singer, guitar player and photographer, he's also become an influential advocate of the preservation of wilderness lands in the West. I spoke to him at the 1993 Alder Gathering in Athens, West Virginia, where he has given concerts for many years. Walken Jim Stoltz through hiked the AT in 1974 and ever since has continued to take long hikes through the wilderness. It was one of the turning points in my life, although I didn't realise it at the time, he said. In between long hikes, he tours the country giving concerts and slideshows about his trips. He carries a guitar on his pack and writes songs. Of his hiking, he said... It's a rich man's life without the money. He got his start in both hiking and music in the Boy Scouts. When his scoutmaster took the troop camping, he would bring his guitar, sing folk songs and dispense bits of wisdom. That's when Jim first picked up the guitar. A few years ago, he gave a concert at Baldwin College in Maine and invited his old scoutmaster, who now lives nearby. It was exciting for me, Jim said. I wanted him to see what I've done with my life. Jim dedicated one of his songs to the scoutmaster. Searching for the Road Not Taken, based on the well-known Robert Frost poem. I was really proud he could see it, Jim said. In 1973, after dropping out of college, Stoltz was hiking in Shenandoah National Park when he ran into a thru-hiker. I had no direction and was pretty insecure, Jim said. I was captivated by this grand adventure. I questioned him for an hour. The next year, I did the AT. The AT changed me in a lot of ways, he said. It made me more social and helped me blossom as a human being. The kindnesses I received all the way restored a faith in humanity that I had lost. He took six and a half months, from March to mid-October, to complete the trail. His father kept track of his progress by sticking pins in a huge wall map. Along the way, Jim stopped and did some short side trails to such places as Gulf Hargis in Maine and Crabtree Falls and White Oak Canyon in Virginia. When he reached Maine, he slowed down. I didn't want it to end, he said. Already he was planning his next walk, a 5,000-mile coast-to-coast trip. Jim admits his AT through-hike didn't get off to a promising start. He had heavy hiking boots, and after a couple of days, he also had big blisters on both heels. I was limping along. It was the most painful situation ever for walking, Jim said. What kept me going was that I wanted to be there. It added some adventure in my life. Even though I was hurting, I was enjoying it. I have a song that goes, It's funny how the spirit will see you through the hard times. The spirit, the will to be out there, keeps you going. After 18,000 miles, the hard times are just part of it. You just accept it after a while. The real steep climbs are a part of it, like the flat trail. There were plenty of hard times. Three days out from Springer, he ran into tornadoes and rainstorms. He didn't have a tent and was totally soaked. 
he hitchhiked into Dolonica and threw his clothes into the dryer. After nearly 20 years, he still has vivid memories of the AT. For about five years, I could tell you the name of every place I stayed, Jim said. A lot of his memories are of people, often fellow hikers in trail shelters. He recalls taking refuge in the standing Indian shelter in North Carolina during a big ice storm. There were 11 long-distance hikers crammed like sardines into a shelter for two nights. All we did was talk about food, snakes and bears, he said. He was on the southern AT one windy night. A shelter was in bad shape, so he and some other hikers set up their tents. They were standing around one tent talking when they heard a loud noise. A tree had crashed down on an empty tent. We were all in shock, Jim said. It was a close call. If the hiker had been in his tent, he would have been killed. It was a real lesson. Now I'm always aware of where I set my tent up. Jim also had a brush with hypothermia. He had done his longest day on the trail, 31 miles trying to get to the post office in Port Clinton, Pennsylvania, on a Saturday morning before it closed. As it turned out, the post office was closed all day, and his big hiking day was for nothing. It rained all day, and he grew wetter and colder. He made it to the shelter before Port Clinton, but his hands were so numb he couldn't use them. With his teeth, he pulled his sleeping bag open and crawled inside. He was scared, but thinking clearly, indicating the hypothermia was not advanced. He had mixed feelings when he reached Katahdin in mid-October. It was exciting to be finally out there and say, I really did this, but I was sad to be finished. If I had had enough money, I'd have turned round and kept going. It was a mixture of sadness in the end and joy in realising I had done it. Because of the harsh weather that late in the season, he had to wait four days to climb Katahdin. When he finally did, it was a perfect day with fall colours down below, ice and snow on top and views far across the main wilderness. When Jim finished the trail, he had one penny left and two weeks' worth of food that other hikers had given him. He hitchhiked around for a while and finally got a job. The next year, 1975, Jim set out on a 5,000-mile, 18-month cross-country walk that confirmed his life as a wilderness hiker. He started at West Quaddy Head, Maine, the easternmost part of the 48 contiguous states. From there, Jim walked to Katahdin and followed the AT to Clarendon Gorge, Vermont, before heading across the Adirondacks. He followed abandoned railroad grades in western New York, then crossed into Canada and hiked the Bruce Trail. He returned to the United States via the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Across the Upper Midwest, he took two breaks of six weeks each. In between, he snowshoed for three months. On the frigid night of November the 10th, 1975, when the oar boat Edmund Fitzgerald went down in Lake Superior with no survivors, Jim was camped by the lake. It was the most miserable night I've ever had, Jim said. The falling wet snow would pile up on his tent roof, and then the high winds would knock the tent down. Every few hours he'd have to crawl out, remove the snow from the roof, and put the tent up again. I was totally soaked, he said. He had lingering ill effects from that night for weeks. Once he fell through ice into chest-deep slushy water. The air temperature was about 10 degrees, and when he managed to climb out, everything quickly started to freeze. Although he didn't usually have a campfire, he had gathered some wood before he fell in. He was able to build a big fire and warm himself and dry everything. He ended his coast-to-coast -coast walk in Cape Alava, Washington, the westernmost part of the 48 contiguous states. During that trip, he used a walking stick that was a piece of driftwood he'd picked up on the Atlantic coast. The plan was to drop it in the Pacific. When I got there, I couldn't let go of it. In 1979, Jim walked the Continental Divide Trail from Mexico to Canada, 
Since then, he's taken many other long walks through Arizona, Utah, Wyoming, Oregon, Idaho, and Montana. In 1988, after he was married, he and his wife, Leslie, took a three-week honeymoon hike in the Grand Canyon. They intended to hike the length of the canyon, but Leslie hurt her leg. Jim has taken three long hikes with Leslie. As much as I love hiking with her, it's different from hiking alone, he said. It's a barrier to nature. Often we're talking. I'm aware of the other person rather than what's going on around me. He writes most of his songs while he's hiking. It's re-creation, he said. I need a spark of creativity. Now he's doing shorter hikes of two to three months because his music has become so popular. Having turned 40, he finds that he's slowing down a bit. If I do a 20-mile day, I really feel it, he said. He also finds that he's satisfied now with less food on the trail. Before, I could never get enough. He normally carries a two-week supply of food and has carried up to 22 days' worth of provisions. He began carrying a guitar on his Continental Divide hike in 1979 and now carries one all the time. It weighs two pounds. He carried his old guitar for 8,000 miles with no case, just lashing it to the back of his pack with the neck down. The rain drenched it and the sun burned it, but it still worked. He even credits it with saving his life. While hiking through Utah, he spent a night on top of a steep mountain. When he woke up, he saw that the mountain was icy. Trying to skirt a cliff, Jim slipped, falling toward the edge. He kicked his feet in and clawed with his hands, but nothing worked. Realising he was going over the edge, he rolled onto his back to see where he was headed. As he did, the neck of his guitar jammed into the ice, stopping him. Now, he says, my advice to hikers is, if they're ever crossing an ice field, carry a guitar. My life is so blessed. I've seen so many special things. I'm lucky enough to make my living doing what I want to do. The more I'm out there, the more I'm convinced it's the time, not the miles. It's not the 18,000 miles, it's the 20 years. I'd much rather take my time.